0: We're going to be looking today verses 4 to 13. About 19 years ago, the world stumbled upon a very startling reality. Allah was more powerful than Oprah. On September the 11th, 2001, 19 Islamic jihadist hijackers took over four different planes in the United States, and the result was that two uh, hundred. 100-story skyscrapers were brought to the ground. The Pentagon was smashed and another plane crashed into the fields of Pennsylvania. Some 3,000 individuals lost their lives that day. And all those who were watching these events unfold on TV began to use a word which had largely dropped from the American vernacular. That word was evil. You see, for the past 15, 20 years, daytime talk show hosts, most prominent among them, Oprah Winfrey, had been advocating a form of spirituality which had begun to take root within American society, really all across Western civilization. Oprah had been suggesting that you needed to believe whatever made you happy. She had hosted on her daytime talk show all manner of different gurus and philosophers, different religious instructors, different spiritual guides. She'd advocated everything from uh, the the book known as The Secret, which is essentially Eastern mysticism, to Deepak Deepak Chopra Uh, and his Transcendental Meditation. And essentially the idea is whatever you want to believe is fine just so long as it makes you happy. And one of the things that America discovered on 9-11 was that ideas have power. And some ideas are much, much more powerful than other ideas. And we encounter here in Acts chapter 13 this morning the most powerful truth. The true God reigns over all other ideas. As we walk through Acts chapter 13 this morning, one of the things I want you to understand is that what we choose to believe does, in fact, control us and exert a power over us. But just because we believe it does not make it true. And regardless of the ideas that we believe, none of those can compare to the truth. Of Jesus Christ, look with me, Acts chapter 13, verse four. Uh, as we've been walking through the book of Acts, we've been looking at this church in Antioch, and uh, they have, under the guidance and the leadership of the Holy Spirit, chosen Paul. he's known at this time as Saul. It is the Apostle Paul. And his companion Barnabas, they've sent them out. We find in the course of this text here that they took with them John Mark. You'll recall back when Peter was freed from prison, from Herod, uh, they encountered this guy, John Mark, while they were in Jerusalem, and they brought him back to Antioch. Now this same man goes with them on their missionary journey. It says in verse 4, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. They traveled from Antioch, which is the interior of northern Palestine. They went down to the coastal town of Seleucia. From there they grabbed a ship and they sailed to Cyprus, island in eastern Mediterranean. And then they encountered some difficulties. Verse 5 says, When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And he mentions that they had John, this is John Mark, they had John to assist them. Now, it doesn't take more than a week to travel from the, west, from the east end to the west end of the island of Cyprus. If you were walking at about three miles per hour and you're walking for about 8 hours a day you can cover the entire island in 5 days. Now, Paul and Barnabas's practice is to first go to the Jews in the synagogue. Synagogues generally meet on Saturday. This is when they have their worship service, and it was Paul's custom To use that event to meet people, make friends, and begin proclaiming the gospel. So, we don't really know how long it took them to go from the east end to the west end of the island. It could have been traveled in, say, a month. It could have been done as fast as a week. We don't know. But they weren't long on this island until Luke draws our attention to a particular event that is very significant. Verse 6, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, the text says, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus, which means son of Jesus or son of Yeshua. Yeshua, Jesus itself, is a name that has meaning. It means God is salvation. So the full meaning of his name was son of the one who is named God is salvation. That's really, that's really what his name would have meant. Is a... Very traditional, uh, very traditional name within the culture at this time. Verse seven, it goes on. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul is like the Roman governor of the island. He's the head official. He answers directly to Caesar. A man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. We notice right off the right off the hop, this is an intelligent man. Luke says he is a smart guy. I mean, he had to be smart to survive in the world of Roman politics, to be appointed as a governor over the island of Cyprus and he wants to hear the gospel. So Barnabas and Saul are preaching. They're working their way from the east side of the island to the west side of the island. News precedes them. The word goes ahead of them. Sergius learns, hey, there are a couple of guys that have come. They're preaching the gospel. They're preaching about a man named Yeshua, Jesus. God is salvation. They show up in Paphos, which is the capital city of Cyprus, where Sergius obviously has his his administration, and his headquarters. And he says, I want to hear these guys. I want to hear what it is that they have to say. Now, right off the bat, we see this doesn't sit well with his most trusted advisor, a man named Elymas. The text tells us, verse 8, Elymas, the magician, for that is what the meaning of his name is, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looks at him and obviously tells him that he's going to lose his sight, and it goes on from there. We know the ending of the story. We see very clearly that this fellow was no match for Paul and Barnabas. He's a magician. They serve a greater God. He claims to be a false prophet. They are the direct messengers of Christ. He claims to be intelligent; that he can work these magical, these magic, this magic, and these miracles. They strike him blind. We read that. We read that it, that the proconsul Sergius Paulus becomes a believer when he sees that uh, Miss has been struck blind. We read that. And we think, oh, what a what a quaint story! What a nice story of how the gospel advanced, and they just keep rolling along, and there are no problems, there are no difficulties whatsoever. But that is a simplistic reading of the text. Look further on, verse 13. Paul, and the text says, Paul and his companions, it's in the plural, he's only got two companions at this point, Barnabas and John Mark. So John Mark is with them. They set sail, they go from Paphos and they go to Perga and Pamphylia. They basically sail north to Asia Minor, they land there. And notice what happens. John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, he's played a minor role in this. Luke doesn't tell us exactly what he did. When Barnabas and Saul, Paul, were commissioned by the church at Antioch, it says that the Holy Spirit sent them out. But Luke wants to include this detail. John Mark went with them. They are on the island of Cyprus. They're preaching from the east end to the west end. It's fairly straightforward. Luke doesn't record any significant details. Then he mentions a magician happy ending to the story, except for this one detail, John Mark took off after this event. There's no exact explanation given. We could guess any number of reasons, but the text seems to indicate that when they encountered this Elemis, John Mark saw that, and he obviously decided, I'm it, this is it, I'm done. We know that he left under less than ideal circumstances because he did not go back to Antioch where he had just come from, he bypasses Antioch, and the text tells us he went back to Jerusalem. So here are three guys. They're sent out. The two are directly commissioned. They take John Mark with them. They go. They meet Elemis, the magician. They have this encounter that turns out successful. But whatever happened there, John Mark says, I'm out. And he doesn't want to go back right to the place where he came from because there are questions, obviously, that are going to be waiting for him there hey, why are you back so soon? We just sent you out like a couple of days ago. Where are your companions? Where where is Paul? Where is Barnabas? And so obviously seeking to avoid those questions, he goes on to Jerusalem where he's originally from. Later in the book of Acts, when they get ready to go on their second missionary journey, John Mark wants to rejoin Barnabas and Saul and go with them. And there's a heated dispute between Barnabas and Paul over whether or not to take John Mark. Paul's argument is, He ditched us last time. He bailed on us last time. And I have no confidence that he's going to go with us to the work this time. We'll look at that in due time. But the argument that Paul gives there is essentially this. When the going got tough, John Mark quit. Now, this guy is not any different than you and me. He was committed to Christ. He was familiar with the scriptures. He was a trusted colleague of Saul, Paul, as well as Barnabas. He went with them to the work. In that initial moment, that flush of excitement, that, uh, that joy over trying to do something for the Lord, he goes out, they encounter something there. They encounter a man named Elimus, and whatever happened, John Mark says, I've miscalculated. <laughs> This isn't exactly what I thought I was signing up for. I didn't anticipate it would be like this. And he takes off. What did they encounter? You see, we look at this text, we see magician, sorcerer, we look at it through our Western eyes and we say, you know what, this is just a story about primitive thinking, people who still subscribe to things like magic. Of course, we know today, I mean, we've seen the Statue of Liberty made to disappear by David Copperfield. We know it's all just smoke and mirrors. It's just a a trick of the eye, a trick of the mind. There's nothing real to it. Or is there See, the text of the scripture seems to indicate that there is something valid within magic and we are expressly warned not to look at it. There is some validity to what's going on here, but we have to be careful in terms of what it is that is real and what it is that is false about magic. I'll give you a modern day example. I was watching a video this past week from National Geographic on voodoo and the rise of voodoo in African countries, and they went and they did a documentary in the country of Benin, which is just west of Nigeria, and they're tracing the history of voodoo. Now again, the exact origin of voodoo is elusive. We don't know, we do know, we don't know exactly where it came from, but we do know it is essentially a combination of ancestor worship, the belief that when your relatives die, that their spirits are still kind of lingering around, and can still influence your circumstances for good or for bad. It's a combination of that with animism, which is the belief essentially that inanimate objects are possessed of a soul and a spirit and that these things are pressing and interacting with each other on a spiritual realm. I was watching this documentary and there was a voodoo priest named Aza. Aza Ganu was his name. And in terms of describing his profession, he essentially said that whenever the people of his village would get sick, they would call on him, he would go, he would visit them, he would invoke... Voodoo, they would feel better, and then they would pay him for his services. If they didn't have the money, Aza shared, he would invoke voodoo upon them in a harmful manner until they found the money. What a friend we have in voodoo doctors. He goes on to explain to this film crew for National Geographic... That his daughter had said to him at one point she wanted to become a voodoo priestess, a medium for one of the spirits. And he didn't want her to do that. He wanted her to pursue a Western education. He sent her to the school, and she apparently had trouble hearing the teacher. Whenever the teacher spoke, she heard nothing. She saw lips moving, but she couldn't hear any words. And uh, she wasn't able to really understand what was going on in the school And uh, Azaganu realized that the spirit wanted his daughter to be a medium and that he was going to face a lot of trouble if he didn't go through with it. So he consented. There was a ritual process undertaken by which she would be possessed by this spirit. It's a rather convoluted, drawn-out process. But essentially, at one point in the ritual, she collapsed in a complete comatose state, The film crew was just barely able to detect a pulse. Her breathing had slowed way down to a dangerous level. The people of the village would not allow the film crew from National Geographic to intervene. They wrapped her body in thick burlap. They said for three days she is going to be wrestling with the spirit and we need to leave her alone. They tucked her away in a closet wrapped in burlap for over three days. It was about four days. They went in to see if she could be saved. It was described from start to finish as a doubtful proposition. You need to understand she hasn't had food or water for three days by the National Geographic film crew's filming and observations. They brought her out. They cut her out of this burlap sack. They were just barely able to revive her, just barely able to get some food and some water into her her voice had changed, it had dropped in tone, she began to act erratically, and all of the village people cheered because this was considered a success. Now they would have two voodoo witch doctors in the village. It's really, really dark. We look at these things and we say, there's nothing to it. But when others look at these things, They see something that is there, and what is fascinating is that it does seem to have a power over those who place their faith in it. Magic has been studied for the last two millennia. Scientific approach was taken in 1931 by Dr. Brian Malinowski, and essentially he defined it for us today. It's almost one of those things that defies exact description, exact definition, but as he saw it, he, he, he narrowed it down. Magic is essentially a mechanical process, a mechanical process where you are trying to manipulate or control spiritual powers. According to Malinowski's study, uh, when it comes to voodoo, witchcraft, sorcery, these types of things, there are always objects that are used. It can be a lucky rabbit's foot. It can be a chicken's feather. It can be any number of totems. And the idea is that these totems are possessed of some sort of a soul or spiritual power and that as you manipulate these things, these things have connections beyond you into the spiritual realm. And as you manipulate these objects and utter spells and different things, you're able to manipulate other things in the spiritual realm that are unseen. That is essentially what is going on with Elemis, the magician. When it calls him Elimus, Luke goes on to tell us that that is the meaning of his word. Elimus is from a name Akim. It's a Sumerian. It, it ha, its basic definition is one who is skilled, a skilled craftsman in spellcasting. That's essentially what his name means. He's a sorcerer. And Luke is describing him as a magician, a magos. This is an individual who performs magic and he is called Elemis, this is sort of the nickname that is given to him, he is skilled in it, he is good at what he does, and he has certainly gained the ear of Sergius Paulus we i've just shared with you this event from benin but we've all seen all these sorts of different documentaries we've all observed different events of witch doctors and witchcraft and magic and all of this and by far and large we tend to dismiss it but we see that within cultures that observe it that practice it it does seem to exert a certain power and a certain influence over them but we don't only have modern day examples to look at we also have the teaching of scripture Dustin read for you earlier and I just remind you that one of the major major forms of Egyptian religion was sorcery it was magic or witchcraft whatever name you want to throw on it God says to Moses go back to Egypt confront Pharaoh tell him to let my people go and of course we know Pharaoh isn't going to do that And so God gives Moses a series of signs. One of them is that he can throw his staff down and his staff will become a serpent. It will become a snake. We see there as we're walking along in the book of Exodus that the magicians are able to do that exact same thing. And it's not only that, we see other instances of of it as well. When he turns the water into blood, guess what? The magicians are able to do that. It says by their secret arts. When, they, when Moses and Aaron uh, call forth the plague of the swarming frogs, the text says that the magicians are able to do that. From the first two signs, turning the Nile to blood and the water of the frogs and the introductory sign, if you want to call it that, where the staff is turned into a snake, the magicians were able to match Moses step for step for step. And seeing this, Pharaoh saw what they were able to do, and he was satisfied that this was nothing more than the same magic that his own guys could perform. And so he didn't take Moses and Aaron seriously. But as we recall from the book of Exodus, after the frogs, that's when things take a turn. That's when God starts to get serious. And the text is real careful to say they could not reproduce the same Plagues that followed after that, eventually all the way up until the striking down of the firstborn of all those who lived in Egypt. Now, the reason why I draw your attention to this is because we here today live in a culture in which we tend to dismiss magic. It's sort of a joke to us. It's something that we might think about on Halloween once a year when October 31st rolls around, and more than anything else, it's an opportunity for us to frighten ourselves or to make jokes about how silly it is. Have you ever heard the joke of the man who was dabbling in witchcraft and accidentally turned his wife and his two kids into furniture? You've never heard this one. Well, there was a man, and he thought he would play around with some magic. He got himself a little Harry Potter wizard wand, and... And uh, he was studying up on his Harry Potter, and, and he decided he would just try to cast some spells around. And lo and behold, he turned his wife and his two kids into furniture. His wife became a couch, and his two children became lazy boy reclining chairs. He loaded up the furniture into his truck, took it to the hospital. He said, doctor, will you help me? I've turned my wife and my kids into furniture. He says, I'll see what I can do. All night long, the doctors worked while the man waited in the waiting room of the ER. He emerged in the morning. The man said to the doctor, how are they? And he said, well, they're comfortable. (laughs) I'm so glad you laughed at that. You tell these jokes sometimes and people just stare at you like, what's wrong with you, you know? This is how we regard magic. It's something of humor to us. You see, here in Canada, in the land of science, what we have done is we have learned that everything can be empirically measured. It can be weighed. It can be uh, measured in terms of length, distance. Its effects can be observed. We can, we can carefully quantify cause and effect. And because we're able to see cause and effect, we're able to quantify and measure and look at all of these things. We are quick then to dismiss these uh, magic tales and these accounts of sorcery and witchcraft as pure fairy tale, pure myth. We dismiss them, but when we do so, we are not taking the biblical approach. The scriptures are clear that While God is true, these things do have a power, they do have an influence, and we are commanded not to look to these things, but to look to God for truth, for revelation. You're sitting here today saying, Pastor, I don't really know how this is significant to us, and I'm telling you it is very significant. Think carefully with me for a moment. What is magic? At its core, it is a mechanical process by which you are attempting to manipulate the world around you with the belief that somehow by twisting these chicken feathers and turning these these crystal balls and all sorts of things, tarot cards, whatever, that by twisting and manipulating these Physical objects that somehow, by a mechanical process, you are influencing the spiritual world in order to gain favor for yourself, in order for circumstances to turn out good for yourself, so forth and so on. But at its root, we're talking about a mechanical manipulation. If, now follow me carefully, church, if you were to go to any of the characters in any of your favorite fairy tales, say, Lord of the Rings, Go get Frodo. Go get Bilbo from The Hobbit. Say Chronicles of Narnia. Go get any of those characters from Chronicles of Narnia. You were to sit them down and tell them about the world we live in. They would not believe you. They'd say, the world that you live in is too fantastical. It couldn't possibly exist. Or could it? Think of how you would describe it to them. Think of how you would help them to see exactly the world that you live in. You would tell them that the world isn't flat, that it's actually round. It's a circular globe flying around a ball of fire. And that ball of fire emits heat and light at a particular frequency that causes trees and grass and moss to grow out of a gas known as carbon dioxide. They'd say, what? You say it gets even better. Our wizards have dug down deep into the ground. They've been able to pull up a black ooze. Not all that different from the ooze that you see in uh, the, oh, now the name escapes me, in that fairy tale Uh, Sleeping Beauty. They're able to pull up this black ooze similar to that and they take it into their wizarding laboratories and they're able to refine it such that they can put it inside of a metal box that causes it to explode. And that metal box is put inside of another metal box which we can get inside of. And that chariot flies on a series of explosions that are caused by this black ooze and we're able to go faster than the fastest horse. No, they'd say, that's impossible. No, it happens. It happens. But even more so than that, we're able to fly through the air inside of a metal tube with wings. Really? You've managed to create a bird? Sort of. Our bird's wings stay perfectly still. They don't flap. What? Yes, our bird can fly without flapping its wings. They just stay still and it just goes. No, that's crazy, they'd say. It gets even better. We've thrown a man all the way in outer space. You see that glowing moon in the sky at night? We've put guys on that thing. No way, impossible, you say. It gets even better. You look at crystal balls in order to tell you the future. We have looking glasses that we can fit inside our pocket. And they tell us what happened all around the world five seconds ago. And from that, we're convinced we know what's going to happen tomorrow. How does that work? It's simple. It's a piece of magical glass. And from way up in the sky, lightning shoots down into this thing. And that lightning transfers information, which this glass then shows to us. And even more than that, we can use this looking glass to communicate to someone else who has a looking glass. We talk into it and it shoots a lightning bolt up into the sky, and that lightning bolt ricochets off of the stars up there, and it, sh- it shines down onto someone else's looking glass, and it's in their pocket, and it starts to angrily chirp and vibrate and buzz, and they pull it out, and they're able to see what I said to them. They say, you are high or on drugs or something. That does not happen. Think about it. What is magic? It's a mechanical process by which you attempt to manipulate the spiritual realm in order to exercise control over your world. We don't believe in magic. I think we do. Anything, you you can call it by any other name that you want, but in the same way that the crystal balls of old tended to draw in their viewers and hold them and captivate them and imprison them. Our technology in the same way today has very powerful addicting effects that pull us in, that captivate us, and eventually capture us. We turn to our technology just like the wizards of old turn to their spells and their charms and we use it in order to get a form of control over our world. And do you know what the result is, Church? The magic of today is doing to us exactly what the magic of yesterday did to them. What is it doing to us, Pastor Josh? Look at the text. Verse 8, Elymas, the magician, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. The text doesn't tell us exactly why, but we can guess. It's not hard. If Sergius Paulus comes to faith in Jesus Christ, he's going to recognize the true power. He's going to see the true God. And that means he's not going to need Elymas to tell him the future anymore. He's not going to need Elymas to work magic. He's going to start to study and learn about this true God. He's going to start Praying, he's going to start trusting that the one true God's plans and purposes are far greater than his own. And rather than trying to control and manipulate reality according to his own best interests and what he thinks is right, Sergius Paulus is going to come to a place and time in which he's going to trust in. God, whatever happens, he's going to recognize that God is in control and he's going to be reassured that no matter what takes place, God is using it for his own good purposes. Where does that leave Elemis? I'll tell you, it leaves him out in the cold with no power, no influence, no sway over the head of government on this particular island. What is our society, by means of science, doing to faith today. We don't need God. We don't need you to listen to God. We don't need you to place your faith in God. We are able, by mechanical means, empirical measurements, able to tell you everything that you need to know. And we're just as empty with all that knowledge as Sergius Paulus was having the best charmer the most skilled magician at his disposal. Sergius Paulus hears the good news. Hey, governor, there's a couple of guys on the east end of the island that are preaching about a God that loves you. They're preaching about a God who cares for you, who wants to address your deepest need. See, the problem is not that you're unable to see what happens tomorrow and you need to try to find spiritual, mechanical ways to control the outcome of events. The problem is that you're deceived into thinking you can control the outcome of events and it's causing you stress. And so you're turning to guys like Ellie to help you when really you need to understand all of that is an act of sin and rebellion against the God who loves you, but not to worry. He's come to address that sin. He's come to die on the cross in your place for your sin so that justice could be achieved, God's righteousness could be satisfied, and his forgiveness could be granted. That's what Sergius Paulus needed. That is what you and I still need today and every day. We're able to dismiss these myths only by turning and listening to God. We think we are smarter than a primitive man, but we're actually fools because all we've done is substitute a new form of wizardry for the old form of wizardry, and we've convinced ourselves that this is better than that because this is based on science, but at the end of the day, both are the same in the sense that we have deceived ourselves into turning to someone other than God for ultimate meaning and ultimate truth. And God warned against this. When he led the nation of Israel out of Egypt, he told them not to engage in sorcery and magic. He told them to only listen to him. Because essentially that's what magic is. It's an attempt to get you to turn away from God to things that are false. It's a question of whom you will trust. It's a question of whom you will follow. It's a question of value, towards what end will you work. It's a question of leadership, to whom will you submit. And ultimately, it's a question of ultimate meaning, sacrifice for what will you die? What will you give your life for? And to turn to anyone or anything else other than the one true God for leadership, for meaning, for value, as a thing towards which you can work, as something for which you can sacrifice is idolatry and it will never satisfy you and it will always leave you broken. God warned Israel not to turn to them the same way that he warns you and me today. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses, he's led the nation out of Egypt They are on their way to the promised land, and God speaks to Moses, and he says, there shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination, or tells fortunes, or interprets omens, or practices magic, or does or or is a sorcerer there shall not be a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead for whoever does these things is an abomination to the lord your god and it is because of these abominations that the lord is driving them out before you but you shall be blameless before the lord your god for these nations which you are about to dispossess notice this they listen to the fortune tellers and to the diviners. But as for you, Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. And it is to him that you shall listen. Now right there, the text has just told us. When we turn To magicians. When we turn to individuals practicing witchcraft or magic, we need to recognize that there is a power in this, but it is not a great power. It is a power that we give them by choosing to believe in them, by choosing to listen to them. And God says, You don't listen to them, you listen to Him. And He promises through Moses there's another prophet coming like Moses but greater than Moses and that is Jesus Christ. When you think of all the different places you can turn to for help and trying to control your future and we're talking uh, bank Bank managers, RRSP, financial wealth advisors, all sorts of people. And please don't misunderstand me. Uh, All of these organizations can be useful. Financial planning is a good thing. But when we invest all our hope into them, when we put all of our value and our significance into them, guess what happens when the stock market has a bad day? We have a bad day. Guess what happens when the car crashes or the house catches fire or something tragic unfolds our value and our meaning is tied to all of these things and whenever something strikes those things we are struck down we don't need to listen to those things we don't need to listen to magicians we don't need to placing our faith in anyone except jesus christ and he is the one that is worthy of us listening to him recall the example of the voodoo doctor anu uh, aziz of Kanu. I practice voodoo, they feel better. If they can't pay, I practice some more voodoo until they can pay. That is the reality of any other idol that we could turn to. But Jesus Christ says that he has come to love us, and he blesses us by dying for us on the cross. Pay. He charges nothing. When we fail, he does not take back his forgiveness. Jesus is greater than any other deity. He is greater than any other power. And when we turn to him, his promises are not empty. They are not fleeting. It is not bait and switch. Jesus and Jesus alone can save you. Christ truly is over all powers. And in case you're wondering, look at the text again. The indictment is read Paul accuses Sergius uh, sorry, Paul accuses uh, Bar Jesus or Elimumus, as he's called, verse nine. Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, "You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy." Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? He says, essentially, number one, you are full of all deceit. Number two, you are the son of the devil. You're an enemy of Christ. Number three, you're making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. And now the power of God is against you. Which is greater? The mechanical witchcraft of Elamis? the sovereign rule of Jesus Christ. You know it, and I know it. Nothing holds a candle to Christ. A number of years ago, again, it was a National Geographic documentary series called The Witch Doctor Will See You Now, British explorer and tribal expert Piers Gibbon took Americans around the world to visit various witch doctors who allegedly had cures for certain ailments which Western medicine had been thus far unable to cure. Things from cancer to chronic back pain. They met various witch doctors. They ingested various horrific things. I'd invite you to go watch that documentary series for yourself. You can find it on YouTube. It's really too horrific for me to repeat here today. I mean, these witch doctors had them eating things like cow urine and all other manner of just horrific stuff. What's fascinating is that when they were examined by medical doctors, some of the different medicinal potions had a minimal effect, but most, it was determined there was no correlation between ingesting this horrific thing, whatever it was, and the alleviation of their symptoms. But all of them said that there was some alleviation of their symptoms. When the doctors examined further, they found that there was a placebo effect taking place. In terms of looking at their condition under the microscope, there was no change, but they felt better. And the reason why they felt better was because they were placing their hope in these clearly bogus remedies. The scriptures warn us that turning to anything but Jesus Christ will harm us. And we can see that there is a power that can come over us when we subscribe to ideas that are clearly false. But Jesus is true. And he is the one that stands ready to save you. Where Christ is different is that whether you believe in him or not, he is returning. And the scripture says that when he returns, he will wipe away every tear from every eye. He will heal every disease. And he will right every wrong and put away all injustice. Whether we believe it or not, one day we shall surely see it. Church, pray with me. Father in heaven, we just say thank you for your word. We say thank you, Lord, for the warning that you give us not to participate in these practices which are clearly contrary to what you have spoken. Father, I just pray for all your people gathered here today that you would not allow us to place any kind of a faith in things like Ouija boards or tarot cards. I pray, God, that you would walk with us in this world in such a way that we not be tempted to look to any of those things, to place our faith in any of those things, but always, Lord, to keep our eyes and our focus on you. Lord, if there are any here today who have been hoping in anything besides you, I pray, God, that your spirit would convict their hearts, that you would open their eyes to see the truth of your love for them, that they would also become aware of the fleeting and unsatisfactory nature of any other deity, any other promise that they might be placing their hope in, that it is only in your son Christ that they will find meaning and peace. I pray, God, that your salvation would go forth today, that you would draw all those in this room to yourself. Lord, have your way among us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.